morning. Welcome everybody this morning. I want to touch base briefly on a subject here based off a discussion I had with somebody recently. And I've been thinking about this for a couple weeks now, and I don't think that I've actually, in fact, I know for a fact I don't have it figured out. But I do have some thoughts put together on it this morning. And that is, um, well, let me back up. I met somebody recently here uh, within the last couple months. And when I first met him, he told me that he, uh, he made it fairly clear that he was not interested in Christianity. That was not a way of his life. He didn't say he wasn't a believer, just that was not something that was relevant in his life at all. And I said, that's fine. We can still spend time together. Um, it's not an issue with me getting along with you at all. And we got into a discussion one day. He brought it up, and uh, he said his question was, I have a problem with Christianity because if God is this good, loving God, why would he allow pain and suffering? Which, from my understanding, is like one of the key questions for debate um, and agnosticism and other, other areas. And uh, I've heard that question before. And he was specifically refer referring to why would he allow bad things to happen to innocent children. But essentially his question was why would a loving God allow bad things to happen? And I've heard that question asked in reference from people that do apologetics and they always say, when you ask that, you do reverse psychology and you ask them, should God give you what you deserve? And supposedly that's supposed to stop them in their tracks and it didn't, because I asked him that. <laughs> and his answer to me was, I'm not sure, maybe. Okay, well, back to the books. <laughs> so I um, was thinking about that, and I, I, don't, I don't think, I'm not even sure that we can give an answer to a non-believer that's going to satisfy him. I, I don't know that you can, because I don't think it's going to make sense. Uh, I'm not convinced on that, but I do think that those of us that are Christians and are believers, I think we need to understand in our mind why God does allow evil and bad things and suffering to happen to, to uh, innocent people or in, in the world in general. So just a few brief questions that I had on it for myself was, number one, did God create evil? Now, it's a base question, but did he create evil? And I, I looked through scripture, listened to some videos, uh, podcasts on this, and I'm going to go with no. I don't believe that God created evil. Um, one reference in scripture that I would come back to is in Genesis 1, 31, God looked at everything that he created and he said that it was very good. And I don't think that God believes that evil is good, so therefore I think that he meant what he said when he said that it was very good. Um, my next question would be, well, we have to believe and accept the sovereignty of God. I think that's a very key element in that. And I wanna look at a conversation in Job that was had uh, a conversation between God and Job. I'm gonna go to Job 38, and I'm not gonna read 38, 39, 40, and 41, and 42. <laughs> I'm just gonna read just Job 38. But this is a conversation between God and man that would be somewhat in the context of this, I would say, as far as um, who are we to question God's motives on things. If we believe that what he does is good and what he does is sovereign, um, I just wanna read this chapter and get some thoughts out of it here. So Job 38, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that, the dark, that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dress for action like a man? I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? 
Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut the sea with the doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds in garment and the thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud ways be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days begun and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it and it's changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like garment. From, their, from the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arms is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of the death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take its territory and that you may discern the past to its home? You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. You have entered the storehouses of the snow. You have seen the storehouses of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble for the day of the battle and war. What is the way to the place where the light is distributed? Or where was the east or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth. Who has a cleft, a channel for the torrents of rain, and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a lamb or no man is, in the desert in which there is no man, or to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given the birth to the frost of heaven? The water became... The water become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of pleads or loosen the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Can you bear the guy? Can you, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinance of, of the heavens? Can you establish the rule on the earth? Can you lift up the vo up your voices to the clouds, that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in the weight in their thickets? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food. And this goes on another chapter. He's this conversation of, of God's design on how he is, is orchestrating and ordained and controlling all of this. And he goes through chapter 39, talks about the, um, the, mountain, goat boats, the mountain goats giving birth, um, the wild ox. It just it keeps going. It gets to chapter 40. And... Um, in verse 3 of chapter 40, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no farther. And so he's starting to give some pushback to that. Okay, I think I understand you, you are in control of all of this. And I'm, I'm going to drop the subject. Apparently, it seems what he's saying. And uh, the conversation goes on for about two more chapters of God talking about this and even um, drawing out the Leviathan with a fish hook. And there's an entire chapter on that. And then it gets to chapter 42. 
And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And I know that doesn't answer our question on why God created evil or why God allows evil, but it does, I think it explains the sovereignty of that he has of control over this entire plan that he has orchestrated um, from the beginning to the end. And I think that sometimes we, if I question that, why does God allow evil and suffering in the world? I have to first stop and go back and remember that God actually, he is in control, he is sovereign, and he does allow evil for a reason, and we need to go on and find out why that is, but just to stop and remember that he is in control of all this. So if he, if he allows re, uh, evil or suffering, why? What's the purpose of it? It doesn't seem like there would be a good reason all the time. Um, but let's go on to Romans 9 and look at a few short verses. And I think that tells us why God does allow this. And if we go over to verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not only from Jews also, but also to the Gentiles. I'll stop there. And so I think what he's saying here is that he allows the suffering, he allows the pain, he allows evil so that he is able to give, to give mercy, which in turn will bring glory to him. And if you go back through the entire context of, of why we're here is to glorify God, and I guess if there is no, if there is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no sin, there's no, there's no reason for redemption, there's no reason for salvation, and there's no reason for mercy, and that's his entire plan is to bring us back to needing him and bringing glory to him. So, Thinking about that then, about uh, evil and suffering and pain, um, what is the greatest evil that's ever happened in the earth? And I'm, somebody answer that. What's, what's the greatest evil that's ever happened? All right. I would say, I'm sorry, somebody say something. I would say that when we, um, when the Son of God was crucified, be my answer to that. I would say that's the worst and the most suffering and the pain, uh, maybe not physical pain, but spiritual pain and evil that has ever happened is when the Son of God was crucified. But if you think about that, not only with that, that's also the greatest glory that's ever came out of, out of the greatest evil that ever happened was through that we have our um, salvation through the, gra- the death, the grave, and the resurrection, which does point to the ultimate glory and praise to God. So that's um, kind of what I've come up with on that. And again, like I said, I don't think that I can explain that to somebody who doesn't believe and have that make sense because I'm still getting my mind around it a little bit myself. But I do think as Christians we need to understand in our mind or know why God does allow what he does. 
Are there any prayer requests this morning or praise reports? Go ahead, Sue. I'm sorry. Okay, Lisa Levy's dad had another stroke. Uh, Aaron Miller or Levy, I was going to call on you to pray. Any others? Good, Phil. I have a daughter that's being sent to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Phil's daughter's going to be going to Ukraine. That's with Samaritan's Purse, is that right? Okay. All right, let's come to prayer. Two weeks ago from Friday last, June the 24th, the Supreme Court of the United States, because of uh, fear of protest and of the coronavirus, they published an opinion on their website. There was, from then, no fanfare. Um, it just appeared on the website on Friday morning at about 10 o'clock. And it ignited or maybe further inflamed a national discussion that we were already having, that we were expecting to have. And in fact, most of us were looking to, to hear that that day. And that just kind of drowned out everything else that we had been talking about, and we probably are still talking about it now, and maybe rightfully so. Um, it was a 213-page document, and it dealt with the doctrine of stare decisis, or that we decide, the, decide our laws on precedent, and even substantive due process. These are very technical legal terms, but I was looking for something in the news that I didn't see. It, it drowned out what had happened a year ago? I thought maybe on the one-year anniversary of June the 24th, 2021, we would read something about it. I maybe read a little bit. But on June 24th in 2021, there was a lady by the name of Maria Ileana Montegudo, 64 years old. And early Friday or Thursday morning, it would have been that year, she was asleep in her bed. And she suddenly woke up. Later, she described why she woke up was a supernatural force, she said. So she immediately got out of bed and went out to her, her living room. She lived in condo 611 in the Champlain Tower South in Surfside, Miami. And she thought, maybe I was hearing the wind because I left the sliding door open on my balcony. So she walked over to close it, and it wouldn't close. And about that time, a crack forms in the wall. She said, two fingers wide, a concrete wall, a crack form. She said, something told me you have to run. The building is going to fall down. So she ran back to her bedroom, quickly changed out of her robe into her, the, the clothes that she just found laying there, ran back to the kitchen, grabbed her purse that had her credit cards, her key to her room, and she blew out a candle that she lights every night to Guadalupe of Mexico. I didn't even know what that was until I read this story and looked into it. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Then she ran towards the hallway. 
When she stepped into the hallway, she had lived here for six months. She just bought this condo six months ago, wasn't overly familiar with the Champlain Towers that she lived in. To her right, 15 feet away, was a door to a stairwell, an emergency stairwell. The power is off. There's no alarms going off. It's silent. She expected clamor because she just knew that there was danger. So, however, she didn't know that that door was a stairwell. She told later when somebody asked her why she didn't use that stair, she said she maybe faintly remembered seeing that door, not knowing what it was, thought maybe it was a mechanical closet or something. But really, at that time, she didn't think about it. She knew 75 feet this way, there was an elevator. Beside the elevator was another emergency stair, so she ran 75 feet. She got to the stair, entered the stair, and sixth floor, started to descend the stairs, and heard a loud crash. That crash was the part of the building where she had just been. Her condo was in the center of the first section of this tower that just within two or three seconds collapsed. Then nine seconds later, the rest of the north side of the Champlain Tower collapsed 12-story building down to about 40 feet tall of rubble. There were 101 people in that area of the building, and they pulled out four of them alive. One of those died. 98 people died in the collapse. When Maria heard the sound of the crash, she said that she screamed, God help me, please help me. And so he did. The area of the building where she had ran to stayed standing for another 10 days. She made it out. She had bruises on her shins. That was it. She made it out. Turn your Bible to Romans chapter 10 and look at verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. like to for a worship service this morning use this 10th chapter of Romans maybe as a bit of an outline here with the title of the message whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved this chapter is a discussion by Paul about the nation of Israel and their unbelief or rejection of the doctrine of Jesus Christ or salvation by faith. So Israel was God's chosen people. In the Old Testament, God had identified them as his chosen people, his nation. This is where the Messiah would come from. They had promises in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The prophets prophesied uh, when they got in trouble, when they would get out of trouble, uh, prophesied great things of this nation. Then as the, as the law and the prophets said, Jesus came for salvation. And in, for the most part, at this point, when Paul's talking about it, they have rejected the doctrine of Jesus Christ and salvation by faith. So verse 1, chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Paul himself was an Israelite. I think he talks about it back in chapter 9. What did he say about himself? In verse 3, I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. His desire is 
that the nation of Israel would come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and be saved. However, their problem was that they had heard the Lord and followed him or not at various times. And when Jesus came and when the Gentiles or the non-Jewish people were being called into the faith or being called into the people of God, they rejected it because of all of the understanding they had of the law that this, they just thought, could not be the case. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Their ignorance was willful, willful ignorance uh, in their unbelief. Chap uh, verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. So Jesus Christ, the law that they were basing their unbelief in Jesus Christ on, Paul says here that Jesus Christ is the end, or the completion, the climax of the law for righteousness. But he's getting ready to talk about or preach the message of salvation to all, which would be Jews and Gentiles, which is what they're rejecting. Um, verse 5, Paul begins to use the law and the prophets that they base all of their belief on to try to convince them of his point that salvation in Jesus Christ is for all people and not just one certain race. And then, so he says in verse 5, For Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. And he's quoting Leviticus 18.5, which says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. The Israelites had their law and had probably added to it a little bit, if we understand the Old Testament correctly. For instance, uh, a Sabbath day's journey is a phrase you'll run across. And God had ordered, don't do any work on the Sabbath. So in studying and, and reading, they decided that, you know what, if we walk too far, that's kind of like working. So we'll just go ahead and set a distance. Um, that you can walk or not if you walk farther than that and then you worked on the Sabbath. So they had added a lot of things to it. Uh, one of these earlier verses said they were going about to set up their own righteousness. And so here, the righteousness of the law was really more to, to teach them that they needed this Savior that had come. And here he was, and they were kind of totally missing it, um, that, that he was their salvation. But then Paul goes on to talk about the righteousness which is of faith, the next verse. And he again quotes the law, or in Deuteronomy, the law revisited, which is right before they go into the promised land, when they recommitted themselves to God, um, and he committed to them, uh, speaks on this wise. Say not in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it, the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach. And he's quoting Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. I'll just read it. For this commandment, which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. 
It is not in the heaven that thou shouldest say, Who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. So back then, God gave them the law, and they had it. It was right there near. It wasn't like you had to go on some odyssey or journey to go find it. So now the gospel with Jesus Christ it is very near. You don't have to go across the ocean to find it. You don't have to say who is great enough to go up to heaven to find it, to bring it down to us. Um, but Israel still, in their unbelief, is not convinced. Verse 9. Let's see. Well, we finished up verse 8 with, that is the word of faith or the gospel which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. This is where the account, the analogy I gave at the beginning, differs. The story of Maria, she was delivered in a physical sense, which God is able to do, I believe. Um, where I'm moving to is a spiritual sense, in the unbelief that Israel had was in a spiritual sense, and that's, I want to make the comparison, I guess, to the two of how quickly the deliverance is, or how certain it is, and from such dire circumstances that you may not even know about, um, that you can be delivered from. So you have to confess with your mouth, Jesus, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. And you'll be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And then here Paul goes again in verse 11, and he's going to now quote to these Israelite people who hang everything on the law and the prophets, one of their prophets, one of their favorites, Isaiah, for the scripture says, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. I think that's a quotation of Isaiah 28. Uh, you can get a similar verse in Isaiah 49, verse 12. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Now we're going to, in these next two verses here, and in that one there, we got this phrase, that call upon him, in 13, shall call upon him, and in 14, shall call upon them. This is translated from a Greek word called epikaliomia which is to give a title, to appeal to, which is what, when I first read this, I understand we are appealing to God, we're calling to God. But it also, several places, in fact, more places in the New Testament is translated as, is surnamed. So there's almost a sense here that when you call upon God or appeal to Him and you have realized your sin, he, he really has called to you. That, that's how you found out about him anyways. And, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute. But then you call to him. You are surnamed or you are called the Christian. Or a Christian. So calling upon God, while our analogy of Maria at the beginning kind of ends here, it's more than just saying, I believe God saved me. Because we don't walk around giving God orders. 
he, he takes care of that to, towards us. Let's just read these here. Um, for the scripture saith, verse 11, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. That's Isaiah. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? This is Zeb's friend from the opening. How, if, if it takes calling upon God for salvation, how is he going to call on him whom he hasn't believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? So it's a very valid question that Zeb brings up in the beginning about um, why would God allow pain and suffering? He, God, orchestrates all of this. His sovereign power, as he talked about in Romans chapter 9, he decides... Um, Whatever he wants, he decides on who he'll have mercy and who he won't. It is his mercy to decide. Um, so here, for the unbeliever, which could be, like Zeb talked about, uh, someone that doesn't want to believe God at all, or as we're seeing here, the nation of Israel, who has rejected Jesus Christ, and it feels like to me then, that they have totally rejected the gospel and that they are in the same position as the unbeliever in the first place, how shall they call on him whom they haven't believed? How are they going to call on Jesus Christ? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard or, or in whom they don't even understand? And how shall they understand him without a preacher or a messenger or somebody to explain it to them? And how can this person that may show up and explain it to them or preach to them preach except God send them? I think the we're going to get to maybe not as clear of an answer as what we would like to have to why God would allow pain and suffering. But I think we I think we can get there, and I think we can have an understanding of that. So Paul goes on, as it is written. And he's going to make a quote again here. Uh, verse 15 is a quote of Isaiah 52. 52.7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. I think we sang a song about that earlier. I like that. Um, Paul continuing here to, to try to make the case, and he is for me, to the Israelites in their unbelief, in talking about salvation by faith starts with calling upon God. Calling upon God then being that we recognize our sin, that we actually believe him to be who he says he is, and that we bring our life into uh, underneath his lordship. The gospel seems so powerful uh, that this shouldn't happen, it feels like. 
that a nation of Israel that God has selected, that has gave so many promises, that has even showed back up whenever they turned their back on Never once has he betrayed any of his promises while they continually betrayed theirs in the, in the covenants they would make with him. Uh, and that's, that's what we're going to find Paul dealing with here next in verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report, which is Isaiah 53, you'll recognize that one pretty quick. Or it's like Isaiah wrote that and said, Lord, who's going to believe this that I'm getting ready to write? Because uh, they're called a, a, a disobedient people later here in this chapter. We'll get to that. Lord, who's going to believe this? So faith comes by hearing or understanding, uh, hearing and understanding, and hearing by the word of God, which is the gospel that we preach. 18, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily. Their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. So Paul has used the law, Paul has used the prophets, and now Paul uses King David. This is a quotation from Psalms chapter 19 to try to prove the perfectness of Jesus, the salvation that there is. I don't know if Paul is saying here that the heavens that declare the glory of God is talked about in Psalms chapter 19 is how the Israelites have heard, or if he's actually talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, saying that that salvation is so powerful that it goes to the ends of the earth. And in making his point again that the salvation of Jesus Christ is for all, it is not exclusive to the Israelites, like they think, so they're rejecting this new new idea of Jesus' salvation to all, but that his salvation goes to the end of the world, earth and the, these words of the message of salvation to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not, or did not Israel know? First, Moses says, quoting the law again in Deuteronomy 32, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people and by a foolish nation that will I anger you? That would be the Gentiles. Again, he just keeps making this point. Uh, verse 20, but Isaiah is very bold or very clear and says, and this is the good part. This is really the good part here. I like this. I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. How's Zeb's friend going to find out about God? How's he going to believe in whom he hasn't heard? Here, to a Gentile nation, read about all of the nations in the Old Testament, they could have cared less. They wanted to annihilate Israel. There's some people like that today. How are they going to hear about it? They're just going to find out, it looks like, because God says here, I was found of them that weren't even looking to seek after me. Um, I think it goes back up to verse 14, that or 15, where God sends the messenger the messenger goes and delivers the gospel. Then the messenger doesn't have to explain anymore. He can. He can be there or she. The gospel itself will penetrate the unbeliever as God did here, as, as Paul talks about here. It is sufficient in itself to, to rectify the unbelief. 
But to Israel he says, so at this point in, in verse 21, but to Israel he says, all day long, this is a quote from Isaiah again, have I stretched forth my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people. He continually reached out to um, a disobedient people. So at some point, like Paul says in the beginning, brethren, my heart's desire and prayers for God to God is for Israel is that they might be saved. That is how now I see us as Christians. I don't believe in the doctrine of replacement theology where the Christian church has now replaced Israel. I don't believe that. However, I see similarities to in us to how Israel is here and with all of the noise, like I talked about in the beginning, that some big debate can show up and drown out other things, is it possible that we could not want to hear someone bringing a message of salvation to us where we have fell into unbelief? It seems when you read about Israel, whenever God has given them so much, he has promised so much, he's plainly told them, you're my chosen people, and they just keep falling away. How could they not believe this Messiah when he so obviously showed up? Is that possible of us? Because if we don't accept Jesus Christ as a whole, then we really accept none of him at all, even some little part. So this is where I get to. I mentioned the Supreme Court decision. I, maybe I'll talk about that a little bit more. Uh, if, if we set about to create our own righteousness, if we build up a tower, to use the example of, of the tower that collapsed in, in Surfside, and, and it's all of our own doing, um, and we don't have the Lord, like, like it kind of feels like our legal system here in the United States has done. They base their decisions on precedent, which means we're going to base our decisions on everything else that we decided before. So we kind of get this vicious cycle, and if something's wrong, it's kind of hard to write. Well, now this decision comes along, and I don't think you're going to find it surprising for me standing here in this church behind this pulpit to say that I agree that abortion should not be named among any person. But what do we do then with the people that have been deceived by this? I read an article just this past week about a man named John Gray. He's 49. He was born in 1973. And his mother gave him up for adoption. Uh, uh, you read the story of his life, and it's, it's very sad, uh, poor guy. Um, and he was raised by his adoptive parents. Somebody showed up to adopt him. He was right around the time that this decision that was overturned, the precedent was established way back in 1973. It was right around that time. Um, he, so his adoptive parents showed up, adopted him, raised him. They were very active in their church. He was raised in a church. And uh, then into his 20s, he fell into alcoholism. Um, there were other problems in his life. And he was always told 
um, that he should feel blessed and that he should be glad that abortion wasn't legal at that point because now he had been spared from it. He has got all the way to this point. This reasoning feels like, to me, kind of where Israel was at. He said, it is very troubling to me that my entire existence is because my mother didn't have access to abortion. While it's a cruel question to ask, would you have rather been aborted? The answer for me is yes. First of all, because if I'd been aborted, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't exist. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? I feel like for us as the church of Jesus Christ, we can't condemn people. Uh, we need to go forward. We need to see this. We need to not join the vitriolic debate that there is and, and cast aspersions and call names. We need to have compassion like Jesus did. Um, so we call on God and like, so, so to use the analogy in the beginning, hopefully to reach a conclusion here, God calls us, we recognize our sin, and he says, run from your sin, like Maria did in the building. Once we realize that, we run from our sin, we call on him for salvation, he saves us, but then he calls us again to walk in holiness. And I guess I just want to leave you with then, homework, uh, look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation or the calling wherewith you're called. So, we're called to be sons of God. We're called to have that compassion. God himself, in his message of salvation, will penetrate the unbeliever. Our calling is to be ambassadors for him. We don't have to have all the answers to the, the questions. And when our unbelieving friend says, well, or like, like my example here of John, says, well, maybe that should have been the case anyways. Um, the gospel of Jesus, to me, just screams no. You are loved. You are worth it. And, and God can, in total unbelief, what did the verse say? Um, I was called, or I was discovered of them that weren't even looking for me. So we're just his messengers. We just need to show up. And I don't want it to be said of us, I guess, then, like Israel. That we could continue to study the scriptures and, and, and look for this holiness and in some way or another find ourselves rejecting any part of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that someone else would maybe say, well, it's because of those people. 